What is a life worth living? Uh, that's a question that uh, all of us ask, whether um, thoughtfully or subliminally. We all are living in such a way that is worthy of our affections, worthy of our priorities, worthy of what we think life is all about. And there is many people who would like to tell you what is worth living for. But in this letter to the Philippians, Paul is going to describe exactly what a life worth living is. And he says in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul had just got done explaining the eternal hope for those who are in Christ upon death, right? When he said to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he went on to say that he's confident that he'll come and see these Philippians again at some point before he dies. But in the meantime, though, he has instructions as how he would have them live. The only here almost is included to emphasize that what he's about to instruct is of first importance, that they can lay aside all other secondary and tertiary issues while he's away if they only do this one thing. And the thing he instructs them to do is to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. You see, the word translated manner of life, let your manner of life, it's actually a really interesting word that's commonly translated as live as citizens or live according to your citizenship. It's where we get the word polis and political. It has a, has a, a feel of governance and, and where you are from and living accordingly to where you're from, which goes hand in hand with what he'll say to them later in chapter three, where he tells them that they should be mindful of their citizenship, which is in heaven. This idea he's trying to get at here is that they should live in accordance to their heavenly citizenship, not primarily with a worldview that is fixed on finding their place in this world, but recognizing that their place isn't in this world, not the American dream that's pitched to us, finding where your place is among the people here, but rather live according to where your true home is found in glory. And that's what he wants to hit home with them. He wants them to let their manner of life be consistent with where they're from. They are to live as foreigners and exiles, as the Apostle Peter will tell his audience in 1 Peter 2. And being the foreigners they are in this world, being the exiles, they should be easily recognized by their alien customs, their way of life, their different speech, a different dialect about them. Actions, priorities, and a lifestyle that bears witness that they are not from here. If their citizenship is in heaven, then their life should be lived in a manner which reflects that. 
They should live in a radical way that testifies to an onlooking world, not the worth of ourselves, but rather the worth of Christ and his gospel. He's not saying here that they're to prove their worth to God and earn the grace afforded, but rather living in a manner that is consistent with what the gospel affords to us. What he's essentially saying here is let your life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be consistent with the gospel of Christ. That if Jesus died to forgive your sins and your home is now in heaven and not of this world, then live like your hope is not in this world. Live like the next life is what you're living for. And what's the hallmark distinction of this worthy living of the gospel? What does he say here? Well, it's found in unity of all things. Unity for the faith of the gospel among other believers. He says, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There there are few things in scripture that are emphasized as much as a body of believers being in unity. Jesus prayed this in his high priestly prayer right before he went to the cross. He prayed that his people, those who would believe, talking in the future tense, you and I, that they would be one just as he and the Father are one. The unity of the church is what's emphasized among all of Scripture. And how do we find this unity? What are the distinct flavors of this unity? Before we get to that, though, notice he says, whether I come and see you or am absent. Notice the behaviors to be consistent, whether Paul's there to see their spirituality or not. I wonder how much of our Christianity is done only when others can see. Do we worship with the same degree of expression in our prayer closet as we do in public worship? Do we pray fervently only at church and have no such prayer closet at home to begin with? Do we do our religious deeds for others to see or is it whether he comes and sees or is absent? Do we live accordingly in unity? Regardless, this consistent unity for the faith is twofold, isn't it? He says, first, it is a standing firm in unity of spirit. Standing firm. This is defensive language. When somebody stands firm, they're ready for an attack. They're ready to stand their ground and not get the other offense, not let them through. They are standing firm in one spirit, in a unity of spirit. And now there's basically two ways people have interpreted this one spirit. Uh, Some have interpreted this as just, they all have this general overall disposition. They have a a unity in mind and and what they're resolved to do. But I, I would say that doesn't really mesh well with the fact that he goes on to say that they're also to be striving side by side in one mind. So distinct from that, I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit himself we're supposed to stand firm in. And I get that from later in chapter 4, he instructs them with the same language. He says, stand firm only in the Lord. 
only in the Lord himself. So when he's saying stand firm in one spirit, he's saying stand firm in the unity with the Holy Spirit himself, stressing this unified pursuit and emphasis of the Holy Spirit's leading in our church. This means submitting to his inspired, infallible word in everything and using the gifts he gives us for our defense against the enemy. And other than that, secondly, this unity for the gospel is not only defensive, it's not only standing firm, but it's also striving side by side in unity of mind. This is word is, is psyche. It means heart, will, demeanor, resolve, disposition. If standing firm is defensive, then striving forward is offensive. Striving forward is the action we're called upon to take in regards to what we believe about the gospel. A gospel-worthy life is found in a community of believers who are united both in spirit and resolve to act upon their shared gospel-centered convictions. Living worthy of the gospel is not just acquiescence of thought, but it's unity in action. It's not just consent to what is right, but cooperation with what is right. It's not only saying we agree, but doing what we said we agree upon. And it's of supreme importance to know what this Holy Spirit-led unity is found in. What can they have such a deep resolve about? What can unite them in such a way that they can say the Holy Spirit himself is what unites us to stand firm? What can unite them in such a way that they say they're willing to strive side by side as if they're marching against the enemy to attack it as an army? What unites them in such a way? What is the common interest that is worth standing firm for and striving side by side for? Well, is it could be denominational affiliation or rather tradition. How about social acquiescence? How about political interests? What is it that unifies them, that they're called to stand for above all else? The only thing we're called to be unified against the enemy in such regard is for the faith of the gospel of Christ, the true gospel. The only thing we're supposed to have such strict unity with and for each other, the only thing that's gonna give us the type of resolve to head into battle against the enemy and all the suffering and circumstances he has set against us is gonna be a unity in what we believe about the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone, who is the second person of the eternal Trinitarian deity, in accordance to the scripture alone as our final authority, and to the glory of God alone. That is the gospel. That is what's supposed to bind them together in such unity to fight for the faith. All other allegiances in this world fall at the foot of the cross 
and are shattered upon the rock of offense that is the gospel. We stand in unity only with our brothers and sisters who are citizens of the same heavenly kingdom as we are. We don't let foreign mercenaries in our army. We don't let those who are of another kingdom, of another gospel, of another message, even if they align with us politically, even if they have the same social values as us, even if we just get along with them and they're nice people, even if they make really good TV shows. We are unified in the gospel of Christ and everyone who's going to be standing firm against the enemy and striving forward into the gates of hell in this army is going to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. But how do we know we're displaying this unity? Because we can all get behind that. We can say, yes, yes and amen. Yeah, yeah, the gospel's the only thing that matters to me. Uh, yes, gospel-centered. That's something that's just thrown around in churches these days. Gospel-centered, gospel-centered. How can you tell that you're truly a gospel-centered church? Well, verse 28, he goes on to describe it further. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The only sign that our church's unity is truly found in the gospel alone is that that it bears fruit of fearlessness in the midst of opposition from this world. When the going gets tough, do we cling to the rock that is our Savior Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross? Or do we try in our own efforts to swim away from the waves of wrath to come? It will not work out well for us. Gospel unity bears fruit of fearlessness. We know that our hope is truly born of heaven when the perfect love afforded to us in the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That perfect love, we know that that's our ground in which we stand on is that when that perfect love bears witness in our hearts and makes us afraid of nothing in this world, as the apostle John said in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It's interesting, uh, the word translated as frightened here isn't the normal word for frightened. It's not the normal word for fear in Greek, but it's actually a specific type of fear that, oddly enough, is actually most commonly attributed to when a, a group of horses, of all things, are spooked by something insignificant, like a loud noise or, or a small snake on the ground. And when they're afraid, they stampede in all different directions, dispersing at what's not even a real enemy toward them. Instead of striving side by side like Paul had expressed in the prior verse, being frightened, they disperse, evidencing that they did not have perfect love. This means that when, we're, when the tough gets going in our church, when the going gets tough, rather, you see those who are willing to abandon unity, who are willing to separate, 
who get mad over this or that, or when suffering of all things comes into our lives and we're willing to abandon the faith or leave this congregation or that congregation. It's a clear sign that those people's unity was never found in the gospel to begin with. True unity in the allegiance of the gospel of Christ only begets fearlessness when opposition comes. Not cowardice, not abandonment. This is because suffering at the hands of those who hate the gospel only bears witness to God's favor on your church, which that's an incomprehensible thing. You suffer for the gospel means that God loves you. You see, 2 Timothy 3.12 gives us this assurance, doesn't it? It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself in Matthew 5 puts it this way, blessed, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, opposition against a church for the gospel's sake, only proves that God's on their side and against those who oppose them. This salvation and that from God is put there as an emphatic reminder that this is God's work in them, that God is on their side. When everyone else fails, when everyone else deserts, when everyone else abandons you, if you are striving side by side in unity for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is on your side. As Romans 8.31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This suffering at the hands of those who oppose God is not only a sign of, of their destruction and of God's grace towards you. It's not only a sign, but I dare to say that it is itself God's very saving grace for you. It is itself God's grace. His sanctifying grace, that is. Verse 29 puts it like this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Just an aside here, notice that Paul says the gospel itself was not only granted to them, but the very belief in that gospel was given to them. Not the possibility of belief, but faith itself is a gift that no one may boast, like Ephesians chapter 2 says. I can't even on judgment day boast that I was smarter than the next person to believe the gospel, but yet even belief was granted to me. But that's not really Paul's main point here. He says that in passing, almost as if it's an obvious truth that they could all agree upon. And he uses that to further say this, the more pertinent topic, that not only was their own faith a gift from God, but the suffering they endured for their faith was in fact a gracious gift. And that's something in our carnal hearts, we're not willing to get behind. How can suffering be a gracious gift? How can the bad things in life ever be any good for me? Well, 
says granted to them. And I say gracious gift because that word granted there is a, is a form of the word charismai, right? You can hear the word charismatic there. And, and that's because it's the same word used throughout all of the Greek New Testament for the word spiritual gift. Spiritual gift. The same word for the Holy Spirit's gifts is used here. This is gifted for you. And that charisomai, the root word is charis, which is the Greek word for grace. In fact, it's the only word used for grace throughout the whole New Testament. So this is graciously gifted to you, not only to believe the gospel, but to suffer for the gospel. Now, this is hard to hear for some people because some people have a theology that, quote, refuses to allow for suffering for believers. And it treats our hardships like, like simply unexpected bad side effects of living in a fallen world. And that they are. There is evil intent from the enemy every time a believer suffers. And suffering is a direct result from the fall in sinful humanity, but is not lost on God. Some say that suffering, at worst, is just a lack of faith. If you suffer in this life, you just must not be living godly enough. If you suffer in this life, then your faith must be poor. Either believe more in gospel promises, give more money to the church, or, or have someone with more faith for you pray for you, and maybe you won't suffer as much in this life. And maybe if it's not that extreme view of, of suffering, I think a more common view is that it's maybe just a, a negative side effect to the gospel, that God never intended for, and he didn't see coming, but maybe he can turn around and, and make some good use of it. Maybe he give a good testimony at the end of the day for it. But Paul could have said that, but he didn't. Instead, he says, it has been graciously gifted to you to suffer for his sake. Instead, he insists that suffering is deliberately and sovereignly given to us at times as a means of the very grace that sanctifies us. See, Joseph certainly knew this. He said of all the sinful travesties that his brothers uh, committed against him, think of Joseph's life in Genesis. Hated his whole childhood growing up only for listening to God's word revealed to him sold into slavery, was plotted to be murdered by his own brothers. Gets sold into slavery, sold again, and then is imprisoned for decades. And finally, when he sees his brothers face to face and he reveals his identity to him, to them, he says in Genesis 50 that everything they did Everything they did was in God's control. Not only that, he says, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. God didn't just take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good. Rather, that's true, but more truthfully, more specifically, he means what the enemy means for evil for your good and for his glory. 
It's a truth not a lot of us can get behind, but it's one that's clearly stated word for word here in the scripture and throughout all of scripture. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Romans 8.28 hinges our entire calling as Christians and our life in this world on this truth, saying, and we know that for those who love God, all things, notice it does not say all happy things, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, we can't always see why perseverance is worth it because we don't see the purpose that makes it worthy. How can the suffering, we we see in scripture, God plainly says that suffering is meant for our good even. But how can suffering be God's good gift towards us? Well, for one, it blesses us with an opportunity to be God's vehicle of salvation for an onlooking world. Earlier in the chapter, Paul testifies to us about his own suffering, all the beatings, all the shipwrecks, nearly dying so many times, and and he's in prison. And what he says that it's all actually worth it. Because it all actually served to advance the gospel. And he tells the Philippians, don't be sorry for me. Don't be sorry for me. He says later in other scriptures that though he is bound, the word of God is never bound. And the more you bind a Christian, the more you free gospel testimony to the world for the light of the gospel to shine forth all the brighter. Because when we suffer as Christians and we don't abandon God, We strive side by side. We don't get frightened at affliction and disperse. When we stand firm in the midst of adversity and strive side by side with other believers in unity when faced with suffering, that testifies to the world, whoa, why are they not shaken? What hope do they have that's greater than the hope I have? That's why he said it's a clear sign of their destruction and of your salvation, that of God, because it emboldens other believers around you and testifies to the non-believers around you that Jesus is worth suffering for. So our suffering can be used as a vehicle to save lost souls from eternal destruction. What a grace. We don't deserve that opportunity But God graciously gives us suffering as a means of grace to others. As we know, Christ suffered for our propitiation, meaning he suffered to take our wrath for us to save us. And while Christ suffered for our propitiation, we now are called to suffer for his proclamation. So that every time a Christian is steadfast and joyful with an inexpressible joy and an incomprehensible joy the world can say he has something that I don't have. Proclaims Christ. But not only that, not only for the sake of emboldening others, and not only for the sake of bearing witness to the world, Scripture also says that that when we suffer, it's a gracious gift because it personally conforms us more into the image of Jesus Christ. It personally makes us more like Jesus when we suffer for the sake of the gospel. He puts it like this in Romans chapter 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. 
We rejoice in our sufferings. We're glad. We are happy when we suffer. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So as a loving father, God knows exactly how much suffering we need to be given to become all the more Christ-like. Or if I can put it another way, he knows just how hot the flames must be to melt all the dross away, to make us shine like the flawless gem of glory that the gospel of Christ affords us as being. It's almost as if as you suffer for the sake of Christ and endure and joyfully rejoice as you suffer for the sake of Christ, you are made to better be able to catch a small glimpse of how Christ suffered for you. When I endure afflictions for the sake of the gospel, I have a small glimpse of the afflictions eternal that Jesus took to give me that gospel. When I suffer, I see in an infinitesimally smaller way what Christ did for me. And I know, man, if he died for me, I can live for him. I can live through, for him through any adversity, through any suffering. He is worth it all. And it reminds me all the more of how Christ suffered for my sake. A glimpse of Christ that would not have been possible if we weren't graciously given the gift of suffering for him. And we know as when Moses walked down from that mountain with a face aglow with glory, when a man or woman of God catches a glimpse of that glory, in their suffering, they will never walk away unchanged. They will walk away with more glory. Or as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, that when we behold Christ's glory with unveiled face, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is grace. This is grace. I don't know how else to convince you. This is grace. This is something you guys should be happy about. This is grace that God so graciously grants us to be made more like him as he suffered for us. He lets us suffer for him to be made more sinless, to be made more conformed to his image. Do you not understand the gracious gift that's given to you? This is his grace. And this is the blessed heritage that we've inherited from our forefathers in the faith throughout church history, throughout Christian history, throughout the Bible. As Paul says in verse 30, he says that the Philippians were engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul referred to this in verse 7, calling the Philippians partakers with him in grace and his imprisonment and his sufferings. He said, you guys have seen me suffer for Christ and now you guys are just doing what I was doing. And I was just doing what those who came before me did. I was doing what John the Baptist did. He was doing what Jesus did for us. As Paul suffered, the Philippians were granted 
the opportunity to suffer with him, which is the pattern and prescription for all gospel unity. You prove that your church has unity only in the gospel when it's following in the heritage of those who come before us who suffered for the gospel. And this gracious call for gospel unity is suffering. It's been found throughout the history of God's people. As Christ said in Matthew 5 once again, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Why? For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Philippians, don't be dismayed. You're suffering, so did I suffer before you. And so did Christ suffer for us all before me. And so did the prophets before the disciples suffered. From the prophets of the Old Testament to John the Baptist, whose head was served on a platter, to John the Apostle, who was boiled alive and exiled, to the Apostle Peter, who was crucified upside down, to Stephen, who was stoned to death, to the early Christians, who were set aflame to light the gardens of that Antichrist Nero. To the ancients of the patristic age who were eaten alive by beasts in the Colosseum for not bowing their knee to Caesar. To the reformers who were burned alive, decapitated, tortured by means of the most wicked inventions of the human mind by the Catholic Church for teaching that we are saved by grace through faith alone. To the thousands of missionaries now who are dying daily to give the light of the gospel in the darkest pagan corners of an unreached world. To finally Paul himself, who was imprisoned while writing these words and would later go on to have his head dismembered from his body for the gospel. And some of you are thinking, man, Christianity doesn't seem attractive, right? No. It's worth it all. Christ is worth it all. We trade the shiny aluminum called this life and we let it be burned, decapitated, strangled, drowned, crucified, and we lose it for the pure gold of eternal communion with the God who created us. It is worth it. The Philippians were called to fulfill his words to the Corinthians when he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And same Christ who said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Jesus, he wasn't saying that in a glim, sad way. They persecute us because they persecuted Jesus. Be sad about that? No, in Hebrews 12, that persecution that led to his crucifixion, which led to the salvation of all those who believe, Hebrews 12 said that he did it. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. And all of those who have died and suffered by any means, from crucifixion to slander, from criticism to decapitation, all of those who suffered for Christ did it for the same reason Christ went to the cross for us, for the joy set before him.
The legacy of the church was that suffering for the gospel in unity was grace itself extending to a world that was perishing. Hebrews 11.38 describes those saints who've fallen asleep, some sawn in two, some burned. He describes them as those of whom the world was not worthy. And Christians, I'm telling you, Paul's call for us here is to endure suffering so worthy of the gospel that the world would be unworthy of the grace in us that the gospel puts on display. Interestingly enough, the word for conflict here is it's actually a word you'll, you'll recognize. It's a, in verse, back to verse 30. It's the word agon, where we get agony, agonies, that severe suffering and affliction. Many people believe themselves to, do, to be willing to do many great things for God. But are we willing, willing to agonize for his gospel? I see many willing to socialize for the church, but are we willing to suffer for her? I see many devoted to great committees, but very few who lay their life down for the great commission. I see many people in church who are willing to do much organizing for the ministry, but very few who'd be willing to do much agonizing for the mission. We will not see revival until we get a glimpse of God's glory in the gospel. We say we want revival. Bring revival to Marion. Bring revival to Trinity. We will not see revival until we get a glimpse of God's glory in the gospel. And according to this passage, there's no better place where the light of that glory shines brighter than against the black backdrop of the gift of suffering for the sake of that gospel. As it testifies of the preciousness of our Savior Jesus 